Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Ohm. I'm your host, Mario. By the time you hear this, Thanksgiving will have just passed, so happy belated Thanksgiving to everyone in the Ohm community. I'm thankful to receive so much support from you guys to run this podcast, and I only want to make sure this podcast gets better to provide as much value as you guys have for me over these past six months. This episode, I had the opportunity to speak to writer and pastor Timothy McCann about his bibliography, including his upcoming novel, Divorcing Atlanta, and dive into how much the publishing industry has changed for the writer, including the actual craft of writing and the business of marketing your work. As always, subscribe and leave your honest reviews of the show so I can keep improving the quality of content I can provide for you and expand the reach of this podcast to other like-minded, driven people like you. With that said, enjoy the show. Yeah, decently, decently, with a car. Yeah, but think about it. It's a think about like a place down here, maybe like in Orlando or Miami or in Atlanta. You pay for parking in the city, but nowhere else. New York City, it's everywhere. Everywhere you pay through the nose too. It's no. not cheap. Space is not cheap. No, space is not cheap. And you, you gonna pay a premium. So the cost is what kept me home. I love the city. Love the energy. Can't I can't come out the pocket that way. So now I like to visit and just go and do like three four days, man. You know, mm-hmm. have some real some um publishing business, and then come back to Atlanta. You know. Oh, okay. that's what the publishing that's what the publishing business is that's what the insiders are oh, New York you know, oh everybody's from New York yeah okay yeah. I see what it is yeah yeah so so I like for, that's what the agents are and, I mean you could be an agent and live other places but that's what the deals are done you know mm-hmm. so man I want to go into that more about like publishing uh, especially in case people want to write anybody mm-hmm. that's listening that wants to write how like, what kind of route you go and how you go through that proper process started, of publishing? I started a um, my own publishing company. Okay. Um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I did uh, first and foremost, I did it because my book is very topical. My book is very topical, and I wanted to get it to the print market faster. I didn't want to wait because if you to get a book deal, typically take about probably six months to a year to get a book deal. Okay. And then it takes about maybe 18 months from, from the deal to hitting the streets. That's a long time. So you're looking at, you know, two, three years, man. And I didn't want to wait that long. Yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I can Especially on top of the fact that you have to look for a publishing company. That's going to take your Yeah, you can't, and you can't present to the company. You got to present to an agent. <laughs> so your first sales are going to be selling the agent, you know, because yeah. A company like Simon and Schuster, HarperCollins, um, Bantam—they're not going to look at your book, no matter who you are. Um, if you up the street, you got to get an agent first, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I I wouldn't, and we can talk about it in depth later on. But I wouldn't suggest going that way today. You know, there was a time when you had to go that way, but just like music has changed, you don't have to go through, you know, the traditional. Uh, music companies, you yeah. can ground them and make more money yourself. Same thing with publishing now. I see what you mean. Yeah, let's definitely go into it. Because 
I have a philosophy class, right? And mm-hmm. we talk a lot about how the media is used to basically spread propaganda mm-hmm. based on industry's best interests or like uh, big companies' best interests. So we talk a lot about how most of the modern media press companies are owned by bigger backings like G G is definitely involved in a lot of uh, media companies, which Almost is not only the television, but the newspaper, uh, TV shows, advertising, a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got in publishing, you got like five companies, man, and they control like 90, well, they controlled about 90% of what people read in print. But now, back in, once again, I could talk about it later on, but in the early 2000s, they, I think it was Xerox, developed a machine that would allow you to print books on demand. Um, before, as an as a individual writer, publisher, I mean, I, self-publishing, I had to go and get 500 books printed, put them in my warehouse, and then pray God I sell them. Now, because you got print on demand, I can call a number and get 10 books ordered, five books ordered. Or I could put it on a site and somebody want to order it by a book and they can print one book. Well, that changed the game for everybody. So how long does it take to get a book printed? Doing print on demand? Yeah. Two days. I mean, you can, you can order it today on Amazon and it'll be in your house and two or three days. Game has changed, man. <laughs> I wonder what they do. I want to see what a new press looks like, like a digital press. Yeah, it looks just like a regular book. You can't tell any difference. I need one of those. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what that machine, I think it came out in 2000, 2001. But when that machine came out, it changed everything. You know, before, back in the 1970s and 80s, you had to typeset the book. You had to set it up on a printer. You know, you had to burn off. Like I said, you couldn't just run one copy. You had to burn off, you know, at least a minimum of 100, 200 copies. Okay. It was very expensive, you know? So, uh, so yeah, that has all changed, man. So, I would, that's the route right now I'm going, and I don't really see myself going the other route. Also, because of economics. Because when you, do, you work with a publisher, they're going to keep 85% of the money. You know, you're going to get 15%. I'd rather get 80%. You know, I really get eighty percent. So, so yeah, definitely, definitely a lot of pros that in regards to publishing nowadays. It has really changed the game. So, how have you seen the role of the writer change as time progressed? Like you said, you were writing a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You're a full time writer, mm-hmm. and how has it changed from when you started back then to now? Especially with like the involvement of the writer, not only on the book and how much time he spends on writing the book, but also like getting the word out there and advertising and. The business has changed tremendous. The writer as a, the businessman had on has changed tremendously. The writer with the writer had on has not changed. Well, has not changed as much because the, you still got to produce a quality product, but in regard to the business side, yeah, it's changed a lot because you got to know, you really got to be well-versed in social media. Um, you've got to know how to set up Facebook ads and 
also know the algorithms for Amazon to set up ads on Amazon. And then there's some also some some tertiary sites like um, Good Books, uh, Goodreads. I mean, um, book like where readers go to read books, things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that office, sorry about that. But um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you do have to know the the business side of it, how to market a lot more. I was sharing with a, re- a writer just last night that I might get somebody to help me with that side of it. Because as a writer, you just want to write. You know, you don't want to be setting up, setting up uh, marketing plans and working, you know, helping design the covers and all. You, you know, I, I just want to write. You know, so if I, if I could pay, I got a public, I got a publicist, but if I could pay somebody to do some of the grunt work for me, I might do that in the future, man. Yeah. I got you. I see. How, so, how would you? How would you advise like a young writer that wants to start writing their own book and get it out there as quickly as possible? You told, you've said that self-publishing is the quickest route to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. How would you advise them? And you also advise that like you need somebody that can also do the marketing in, especially yeah. if this is like your full-time thing, but starting out, you don't have the capital. How would okay. you advise going about that? Build your social media footprint. Okay. Get as many followers before the book. Before the book. Okay. The very moment you decide to write a book, start building your social media. Try to get as many followers as you can. You want to be a social media influencer as much as you can. You want to try to build up to two, three, four, ten, twenty thousand people that's following you or that you can touch in an instant because that's free advertisement. And then once you start building that, whatever way you can build it, whatever way you can build it, then you start hyping your book and you start hyping that book months before it drops. You start talking about it. You start putting the buzz out. You know, I'm writing a book about this guy on a journey and you want to talk about the book. You want to, and then you want to give them pieces of the book. You want to, when I say pieces, you want to eventually, you know, at first you don't give them the title and then maybe it's four or five months out. You know, you have a reveal, you know, we're going to name the book, um, My Friend's Journey. And then you have My Friend's Journey reveal on your page. And then maybe a m- two months for it, you have the big reveal, get anticipation for the cover. And then you start hyping the cover so they get the cover. Maybe a month out, you start saying, start hyping up, okay, I'm going to drop one chapter and then let people get caught up. So you just like peace, man, and you give them a little breadcrumb, little breadcrumbs and build an anticipation because what you want to do is build word of mouth. And all of that, none of that costs you any money. None of that costs you any money. And okay. then after you've done that, then you want to get you want to get yourself a street team, and a street team, a social media street team. These are your ride or die. These are people who love you. They want to help you. They want to. They believe in you and things like that. And then you have them in a Facebook group, or you have them in a selective group that you communicate with. Say, listen, guys. I need you all to do some posting for me. I want you to post some, post this, this meme for me, post this cover for me, post blah, 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 blah. You know, and, 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 and you know, I'm going to put you in my book. I'm going to put, you know, my, my, my street team, Joe Smith, blah, 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 blah. And so now they are on board. But now you got them out there now thinking they are part of the process. So now you got 20 people, 30 people out telling their friends, you know, about your book. So you're trying to build your, you're trying to build your outreach organically. Yeah. 
And anybody can go out and pay for a Facebook ad and, and I spend thousands of dollars on that, but that's upper level stuff. Build your, 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 your basic organic footprint first and foremost. And once again, you can do that the very moment, the inspiration for a book comes to mind, start working on building, building relationships. Okay. So as far as building your social media presence and your outreach, would you say sticking to the same, like if you're a writer sticking to the theme of writing, how would you best advertise it? Like I was thinking more on the line of doing uh, short stories, maybe mm-hmm. like poetry or something that you released. You can do it, but people, folk, they're not buying the short story, they're buying you. Yeah. So however you can make them fall in love with you, want to follow you and be intrigued by you, you're the one they're curious about. The stories come and go. Everybody got a story, but you're unique. So you're building your brand, you know, Um, and that's what I have done. I've just been trying to build my brand so people want to follow me and know what's next. So whatever comes from me, they're interested in it, you know, be it a, be it no matter what it is, you know, if it's, if it's a short story, if it's a novel, if I did a movie one day, which I want, but whatever it is, they caught up in the brand. So that's what I would say. Just focus on trying to get as many people as you can touch and try to get them in your tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in, I would say 30 and under, you want to strongly build your Instagram. You want to strongly build your Twitter following. If you're 35, 40 and up, it's going to be on Facebook. It's a different crowd. And your read is going to be on the Facebook. My read is not in the Instagram, Twitter. I got an Instagram and Twitter following, but that's not really where my readers are. My read is going to be on Facebook. You know? Okay. Yeah. I see that. Yeah, yeah. I see why Facebook still has a, like a presence. Because I was always like very curious, even though they own like Instagram and everything. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't hate on Mark. I respect Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I respect him. I know what he does, but uh, I always thought like Facebook was just where my parents and up stayed at and they like message around, which is true. Mm-hmm. I just, I just thought it was like a desert land. Like, wow. Somebody says Facebook is like, why are you in Facebook? But as I got older, once I got in college and I realized that like, I'm old enough to say that I'm on Facebook or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, it gives you a lot of people it, on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, billions of users, man. And, um, you know, I love the way that you can segment market yourself, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I can find, I can pinpoint and find exactly the reader I'm looking for in Spokane, Washington, right now, you know. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, a lot of other mediums don't give you that ability to do that. So, so that's what I love about it. Mm-hmm. So as far as building your own brand, let's say I want to write a book and you tell me and I want to talk about like, or just like random person, let's say dude wants to become a rapper or wants to build his brand about like being around hip hop mm-hmm. and he wants to also write a book or like a memoir or autobiography to build hype around it, maybe he wants to release his book 10 years from now. Like mm-hmm. once his entire career within hip hop industry is 
like wrapped up. Uh, does he basically market himself with the girls and the bottles and in the studio or? Um, yes, yes, but not exclusively. But yeah, that's a part of it. Yeah. That's a part of it. You want to have the girls and the bottles in the studio. But you also want to live, you also want to market yourself so that people who want to live vicariously through you will be excited about day too. And that could be the nerd who, you know, who works behind a computer all day and never sets outside. But a part of him only had that escapism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what reading is. It's escapism. It's not the newspaper, but reading fiction is, I should say. It is, it is fiction is to the world what hip-hop initially was to black news. It was the way we carried a message back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you still don't have a black news station. But the first time I heard F the Police, I was like, actually offended. I was like, hey, man, why, you know, why would you be saying F the Police? The police are not doing that much bad. But I was in Gainesville, Florida. I wasn't in L.A. until I seen Rodney King got beat down. Then I'm like, oh, now I see what you mean. And it was Chuck D who said that, that hip hop was the black CNN, you know, because it was a way for people to tell on the streets what was the, to evoke the emotions that was going on on the streets. Conversely, fiction, put it this way. If I wanted to read about, if I wanted to understand what it felt, what it was like to live during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I could go on my computer, I could pull up newspaper accounts from the 40s and look at maybe the New York Times and see what it was like. Um, the stock market, the housing, the food lines, things like that. The New York Times would tell me that. If I wanted to understand what it felt like, I would read Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck because he's going to tell you what it felt like to be hungry, to not be able to find bread. New York Times not going to tell me that. They're going to tell me the facts. Fiction is going to tell me the emotion. Hip-hop tells you the emotions of the streets. The newspaper tells you what happened in the streets. Hip-hop is going to tell you what it felt like to look in George Floyd's eyes. Okay, the newspaper is going to tell me somebody had his knee on his throat. So what you want to do is, with fiction, you want to evoke that emotion. So that they can feel it. They can feel it in their heart. Um, and that is what people come, and that's the escapism people get when they read it. Going back to what I was saying earlier. So that guy sitting in the cubicle, he wants to escape the cubicle. You know, he has his wife, he has his kids, but he won't escape. So he'll read that about the bottles, about the, the, the strip joints and things like that. And he can be in that place in the moment, but then he closes the book and goes right back to his computer. And that's the job of fiction. It gives us that journey. Oh. I wonder what that life is like at the cubicle. I hope I don't have to experience it, but who knows? That would be like death, man. Let me grab something. (laughs) But that would be like, that would be like my worst, my worst uh, nightmare, man. I've always, I'm not a good nine to five kind of guy. Mm -hmm. And, um, I could never do it, man. I just feel like I'll get bored because I've realized 
like growing up, I got bored of things very quickly. Especially yeah, man. My interest that long. I would. Ne- I could never do it, man. I could never do it. I'm sorry, but I spilled some. I spilled my my uh, water, and it's been bothering me. I keep looking down at it. I got you. No problem. Real quick. I won't be distracted. But um <laughs> but no, I can never do it, man. I can never do it. I I, I can never do it. Mm-hmm. What's the worst job you've ever had? Never had a bad job. I've never had a day when I when I didn't want to get up and go to work, man. I've been very, very, very blessed. My first job in college, man, I worked in a record store. That's like the dream job, man. You know, working. You know what? What? That's that's pretty cool. I never thought of that because I always wanted to work at Foot Locker. Oh man, you know it's like fun, man. It's like it's not work. I mean, you wait for the new shipments to come in because you want to see what's new, you know. Exactly. <laughs> My mom always hated. It. She was like, "You want to put uh, shoes on people's smelly feet?" I was like, "No, it's not about that. It's about <laughs> just being inside, seeing in a peak of all the good stuff." Man, when the new records came out, I got to see the new sound. And then for me, because I love music. It was also um, learning to like music I wasn't exposed to. Like, what is it about country and western? Let me figure out what they like about it. What is it about jazz? Let me, what's the, what's the difference? Why, why people like classical? So you get to try to listen to it with an open ear and try to understand what's the attraction to it. And once I did that, it's like, okay, I, I, I can see. They like country and western. They like the stories. The stories, they, they tell stories. It's different, but they tell stories. Same reason I like hip hop, you know? Yeah. Um, jazz, it's, it's, it's a musical journey, man. You know, it's a lot of emotions in it. Same thing with classical. So, so yeah, I, 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 uh, so I enjoyed that job. And I went right from that into, um, into uh, financial planning, which I enjoyed as well. So, yeah. I see what you mean. You ever met somebody through a connection through music? No. Um, I, I don't know if I, I think I tell you before, but I was a producer. Yeah, you did. I I did. Yeah, and uh, I did the whole thing in New York, man. I went to New York with my, man, in those days, cassette tapes and uh, knocking on doors, man, and listening to my demo type deals. And I went to Def Jam back in the day, the Def Jam ran everything. And, uh, we almost got a promotion deal, but I couldn't keep my guys together in Florida because they were all in Florida. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very, very difficult when you got a dream, um, when you got a dream that's being, um, that you got to share with other people. You know, not just you, but other people got to be involved with it. Because I got to keep you engaged and this person engaged and this person engaged. It's very difficult. And that's one reason I went into writing because with writing, I control the narrative. I don't have any, I don't have to hire any actors, no lighting people, no directors. You know, it's all my show. And it's got I just need an editor. And me and the editor, we rock it. Boom, from the editor to you. <laughs> so what advice do you have for anybody that's like trying to form like a band or a collective or a group of people? Because you said you had a tough time just managing everybody because not only are you like working on your craft and make sure you're doing your part but also making sure everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing what would you say to anybody that's like thinking about it because i'm actually thinking about it 
Um, the same advice I would give to somebody, because, you know, I was a pastor as well. Um, and I had a church. So I'm still a pastor, but I don't have a church right now. Um, the same advice I would give for a pastor, I would give to somebody trying to uh, start a Fortune 500 company. Same as I would get a person start give a same advice I would give to a person trying to start a band, and that advice is as the leader. First of all, you've got to be the true leader. It's not a partnership. They've got to know that you are the leader. Period. Second, because and the reason I say that is because in business, the 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 the, the business relationship that has the highest failure rate is partnerships. Um, you know, they, when banks get rid of loan money, they get very scared of partnerships. They will, they would love, they prefer to, to deal loan money to a person who was going to be the CEO or the president of the entity. Why is that? Because you're the person with the vision. So be it a church, be it a corporation or be it a band. The, the, the single, the, the common thread is you've got to have a clear, concise vision. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there. And this is when we're going to get there. When you do that, when you lay out your vision with that type of specificity, people are attracted to it and they want to follow you. You know, we're going to make a hit record. We're going we're gonna to hit billboard. We're going to do X, Y, Z. You give me 18 months, we're gonna be we're gonna be millionaires. Okay, cool. Just follow what I say, dude. I got the plan. I got the recipe. Okay, you got the talent for this. You got talent for that. You got talent for that. But just listen to what I'm saying. Just follow what I'm saying. I know where we're going. Men especially are attracted to somebody who knows exactly where they're going. But if you go, mm, mm, uh, well, I don't know you. You 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 all mealy mouth and everything. You don't know you, what you're doing, dude. I ain't got time for that, man. I ain't wasting time with you. Mm-hmm. So, your vision and advice I would have, I would give somebody. So, what would you say are the failures in partnerships, where everybody has an equal? Share? No clear direction. Okay. Clear direction. If you look at a great partnership that worked, look at the partnership at Apple with Steve Wozniak and Bill and, um, and Steve Jobs and those guys. They had a partnership, but Steve Jobs was the figurehead. I think it was Wozniak who was a computer guy. Yeah. Another guy who did marketing. So if it was marketing, boom, that's all you, baby. Uh, computer, software, boom, that's all you. Direction, that's me. And it's yeah, clear nothing. He really, he really, he never, he never laid a finger on a single computer chip. All he had was a vision, baby. All he had was a- that's all he had. And that's why we know him. And that's why I didn't say Steve Jobs, I think. I said Steve Wozniak, I think. <laughs> but Steve Jobs, we know. And we will know him a hundred years from now. They'll know his name. They may not know Steve Wozniak name. They will know Steve Jobs. I remember back in the days when like MSN was everybody's homepage. Like if you were anybody, MSN was your homepage and you had all the little news, the news tablets that you went through. I remember looking at like what some billionaires were purchasing. They were purchasing like land in Alaska and Antarctica, like hectare acres of nothing, just land. Really? Pure land. In Antarctica. Yep. 
Get out of here. Not in like Antarctica, but they were very remote places. Wow, interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know. That's very, very interesting. No, I don't know what's next to them. I will say, though, um, a part of me, I mean, I, I think Amazon is good and bad. He has a lot of power. <clears throat> I don't like some of their business principles that they do, you know. Um, something they do is kind of shady. Like um, if you're a mom and pops and you learn how to make one of these little iPod earpiece things right here, and you put on your page and they'll watch your traffic. If, you're, if, you're, if your pieces are doing well, they're going to make their own. And they'll yeah. pull you off the page <laughs> and underprice you as well and not drive you out of business. And eat. first thing they do, they try to buy you out. And if you don't want to sell to them, then they just replace you. Something fundamentally wrong about that, I think. I mean, I understand it's a free marketplace, but I don't agree with that practice because you have an unfair advantage. But, you know, so I don't, I'm not really feeling that, um, you know, thanks, some of the things they do like that. Uh, I wish they would honestly, and it's for, I'm a true capitalist to the bone, bone but I kind of wish they would break them up and make them compete a little bit. Um, same thing with Facebook. Facebook got too much doggone power. Okay. You know, Mark is sitting, Mark is sitting this, you know, and he's like a king, man. You know, he There's has no the competition anywhere, though. Think about it. The car market. Everybody my age wants a Tesla right now. Everybody my age wants an iPhone. Yeah, it's pretty much your. There's a average U.S. citizen starter pack. You gotta have an iPhone, Tesla, TikTok. Get your data stolen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you need some Air Force Ones. Right. Right. Yeah. That's that's the setup. That's the setup right there, man. So, you know, <clears throat> you know, but you have to draw a line. I mean, we, we once again, we, we are pro, we are free enterprise, so you want to reward people. But there's also responsibility that comes with that as well. Um, I mean, history tells us that irresponsibility of that power demands the government making a move. That's what happened to Ma Bell. That's what happened to U.S. Steel. Um, they had to break them up. Yeah. They were being irresponsible with their power. I think nowadays with social media companies, especially in the political environment, I think many times they've acted irresponsible um, in some of the things they've done. Uh, I think that there should be some measures. They need, they, they, you should not be able to post out and out lies as a campaign tool on the internet. Because people read it, because many people, especially in your generation, go there for their news. Mm. But I can literally post that Hillary Clinton is a man. And nobody's going to take that down. Whereby if I was the New York Post, I can't do that. You know, so you can't have it both ways, you know. Because people are going there for their news. There's a level of responsibility that they have to take on as well. So it's pros and cons, you know, to, to both of those entities. I had an idea that the blueprint was already made once you had U.S. Steel, you had Carnegie, you had Rockefeller, because think about how much they made. And at that time, even though it was richer than the richer people. Oh, yeah, definitely. And 
the amount they had, I mean, practically a good portion of America either worked for one of those three companies and they bought products from one of those three or four companies and use their services as well. So like I see nowadays how business tends to manipulate the psychology of a large population of people mm. and mm. they have their own ways of incentivizing the public of, you know, trying to buy their products. And it's constant, it's a constant battle. It's a war for your screen time and to right. To be right in front of your face all the time, and do you think it should be intervened on that level? I think a responsible government will, because it's for the public good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that if I think not to do so is being negligent. Um, it, it, it gets to the point where. They're doing good, they're doing good, they're doing good, and then that goodwill turns to something negative. And it's because, uh, what's that? There's an African proverb that says, uh, it talks about how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when you get to the point where you got absolute power, i.e. Facebook, i.e. any monopolies we were talking about earlier, it has a tendency to corrupt you absolutely to the bone. Um, because it's so, it's just so much power that we have entrusted you to have over the people. I mean, we, once again, going back to the scenario earlier, when when you can literally influence who's going to be the president in the United States, you one person, not taking it to a board, but one person has that much power. That's a very very dangerous thing, you know. Um, with you, you could, I mean, Jeff Bezos could actually throw a tax on Amazon services tomorrow and increase, increase his net worth exponentially. And people will still use him. People sit there and say, I wouldn't use it. You put another 20 cents on my every purchase for a search, surcharge. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. I'll tell you right now, even I'm guilty of falling into these traps. Everybody said, stop, stop eating Chick-fil-A. Where do I go every week to go get my spicy chicken sandwich and fries? Chick Fil A, man. A number one. Who's gonna turn down number one, man? You know, <laughs> with waffle fries. I mean, come on, man. Let's be honest. Nah, man. You gonna buy it? You know. So yeah, he can throw twenty cents on that surcharge. He'll bump up his bottom line by billions of dollars. Nobody's gonna complain about it. They might. Oh my gosh, it's a travesty. You gonna still order that bedroom set on Amazon? So. That's that's a lot of power, man. That's a lot of. Power. I don't even feel like it's a it's a addiction or it's a generating a habitual thing in everybody. I think it's more like a toxic relationship. <laughs> yeah, because like you yeah. you understand it's bad. You always hear the bad news from your friends. They're like, "Yo, watch out! Uh-huh. Oh, you gotta leave right now. Stop messing with them." They're no good people. They're no good for like, you. You're like, yeah, I know, I know. You tell them, you're like, no, I'm not messing with you. We can't do this anymore. And then somehow you get sweet talk right back. Loot right back into it, man. It's like a, a a bad relationship, a toxic relationship. You you know, you 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 know, it's like, dude, you know, instead of me going to the mall, I can just order right now, I'd be here tomorrow. And we find a way to justify. You know, we find a way to justify it. We find a way to justify going back to the girl. You know, at least I know her. I know she's no good for me. Same. 
That's a great analogy. Same exact, same thing. Speaking of that, so it's going to take a wild 180. But since we were talking about toxic relationships, and your book has a lot to deal with relationships and any type of road bumps that you might get. How do you weather through being in a relationship or in a tumultuous relationship while you're in a while you we're doing quarantine, basically? So like, what we found out first of all, that's a great question, and that's exactly what the book is about. Um, what we found out, we had this social experiment in this country, and COVID forced us to do it. Um, can you live with somebody without killing them? That's a really good uh, experiment that we had. And uh, for some people, they've come close to it. Um, and for other people, they've, they've, they've gotten closer. And for some, unfortunately, it, it killed their relationship. And what it really did, what COVID did um, and quarantine did, is it put relationships under the microscope. And it let you really see a person, maybe for the first time. You know, when you have a normal relationship, you know, if you're, you know, you're out in the workforce, you're doing your job, you come home at night, you might spend three, four quality hours with each other, maybe. And that's if you're not looking at your phone every 15 minutes. And that's if she's not on the phone talking to her friends, yeah. you know, um, and you spend some time on the weekend, possibly. But quarantine killed all of that. Now, maybe you're both working from home. Maybe you both got to do co-parenting and parent the child and the child is doing homework and things like that. And it put the relationship up under the magnifying glass so that you could see what you really have. have. How do you survive that? The same way you survive it in non-quarantine times, and that answer is very simple, communication. And that's the essence of the book. It talks about how we fail to appropriately communicate one of the problems, especially if you are an accomplished couple, let's say you post, you both got a college degree, you're both professional, you're both doing your thing. And one of the things that we sometimes can think is that we are excellent communicators. You know, the fact that you can give a, a great presentation, the fact that you may be able to minister, the fact that you may be able to talk for hours and hours and hours to your friends. You can talk on... <laughs> You could talk for hours and hours to each other and not truly communicate. The problem with communication is this. People think communication is just talking. And that's not, that's not the only way to communicate. Sometimes I can communicate to my lover how much I love her by literally just listening. Sometimes I can communicate to her by when she's, when she's on the phone talking, just giving her a foot massage. I've communicated how much I care about her, how much I understand what she's dealing with without her even telling me that I understand what she's dealing with. So, so communication is not just words. It's not just flowery language. It's everything you do in a relationship, you know? It's remembering things. It's, ooh, it's a good one. It's seeing something they never saw, thought you saw and then bringing it back to life. You know, you notice something about them that they didn't notice about themselves. And you go, I always noticed that you like X, Y, Z. And they go, yeah, I do like that. You've, you've now communicated to her or to him, as the case may be, how much you care about them. 
because you're watching, you're, you're, you're attentive to them. And at the end of the day, that's what we all want. So COVID let us understand that some of us are really not that good at communicating. We might be kind of good at talking, but mean kind of piss poor at communicating sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Because um, I was watching a video not too long ago and it's a guy I usually watch. His name is Patrick Beck David and he always gives like business advice. You have to, he <laughs> taught that you have to learn how to talk in different like languages or communicate with different types of people based on the context of your situation. Okay. Like your wife or husband, your boss, employee, your family, your mom, you, you don't talk to those people the same way at all. They all, they all are, they all mean something different to you and they all know different pieces of you. Right. So right. you have to communicate that accordingly. Even though it's, you're looking for the same things or you're, the goal is the same, it's just achieved a different way. Exactly. It's kind of like when you go home with your girlfriend for the first time and you watch her interact with her sister and you look like, wow, I've seen a whole different side of you, you know, or her parents and things like that. And you have to learn how to communicate in different circumstances you have to be by or try a quadrilanguage sometimes <laughs> have to understand the environment you're in and speak appropriately but um going back to that with, with a, a relationship with that significant other um, i'm reminded i'm trying to get the author of the book but this great book entitled the five love languages um i think that is a must read for every couple and, and for guys, it's a great book for a guy to suggest to read with his girl. You get mad brownie points for doing that. But, <laughs> because that shows that you care enough to ask, you know. And sometimes when you read a book like that, you don't even understand what your own love language is. You might have thought that you were uh, words of affirmation, and that's really not as big to you as as physical touch and you didn't even know that about yourself so it's good that so that you'll know because to quote Shakespeare to that self to that own self be true you got to know what makes you happy first and I think that's one thing that's very sometimes people get into relationships and they don't feel themselves being fulfilled and they think the other person by osmosis should know how to make them happy when they don't even know how to make them happy so understand what makes you happy first before you even get in a relationship and then express that to him or her. And also, once again, knows, know exactly what makes them happy. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to the power of books, which surprisingly, like, even though we have all of this digital content nowadays, nothing will teach you about yourself faster than books everywhere because like i feel i've had my self-defiant phase and i'm sure other people my age are starting to go through that defiant phase where like we're in college we're away from our family mm -hmm. pretty much on your own like you're a big man now you know you got to make decisions mm -hmm. and you feel like you'll learn these things out through your course in life you'll make mistakes and you'll learn through you know trial and error but it's there for you is there wow. for you. Right, right. I totally agree. I totally agree. But like, 
everything else going on in the world is pretty much blocking you from that or not even like shining a light like yo go here <laughs> yeah I follow you I follow you what do you do with that <laughs> I wish I wish I don't know if I wish that more people thought of it or started seeking more wisdom from a younger age, mm-hmm. but then I realized it wouldn't be cool to be wise anymore because everybody else does the same exact thing and they use like reason and logic instead of like emotion. Mm-hmm. But you enjoy the journey, man. I mean, it's okay to be twenty. You don't have to think on a level of a forty-year-old. Um, everybody has those same mistakes. We make those same errors. Um, I think the key is to, uh, A, learn from your mistakes. Don't want to keep making them over and over again. But B, not to be so hard on yourself. You know, um, it's okay to date a crazy person. It's, it's, a part of the, it's a part of the initiation into manhood or womanhood. It's okay to to have your heart broken. It's okay to trust somebody who didn't trust, you shouldn't have trust. And you can't kick yourself and say, oh my God, I'm so stupid. No, you're just learning. You know, it's almost, it's almost like calling yourself stupid when you ride a bike and fall off of it. You're not dumb, you're just learning how to ride the bike. So yeah. you dust yourself off, you get back on and you eventually you'll master it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that would be my advice right there. I feel you. Yeah, I started doing more of that, but I see myself as a calculated risk taker because like high school, I was a risk taker. Okay. I was like, I was, uh, I know I'm gonna get grounded, but I'm gonna still do it anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's some of the, that's the best risk, man. You know, you, know, you got to have an experience. It's the adrenaline rush. You know, but then, you know, like it. At least I have the memory because I laugh at it now, but I remember when I got back. Dude, you, you need, everybody need a full chest of I remember when stories. That you could be driving down the street and you think, oh, I can't believe I did that. We need that. I think life would be very, very boring if you don't have some stupid story that you can go back and think, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe that night. I can't believe I did X, Y, Z. That's, that's what give our life color, man. So yeah. it's, well, it's like now it's calculated because I, I just can't get in that same. I mean, of course, like my parents aren't here, but now it's not about getting in trouble anymore. It's about like just being productive and getting my work done. Like, you got too much at stake now. though. Yeah. It's a lot more. <laughs> You got way too much exit. When you're 16, 15, 13, 14, you can do silly little things. But at this stage in life and what life has in front of you, also, um, anything you do can be pulled up in seconds. You know, when I was your age, if, if I did something wrong, it'd be kind of hard to find it. You know, they didn't have the internet and have ex, ex, exposure to your entire life in the palm of their hand. So now you want to make sure you you keep your nose clean. <laughs> exactly. And like, I don't see why it's so hard. Uh-huh. It's like people will willingly do this now to show people that they're wrong. Like we have fake Instagrams and sometimes people just want to use it as an outlet to talk to people about their life. 
But sometimes it's just, you know, let's see what, how wild I could get. So they just live by character through fake, fake social media accounts? Yeah. That, but now, what kind of branding is that? Because could you brand yourself like that? Like all the wild adventures, like maybe getting sloppy drawn? Like, Let's go back to the old yeah. school. And just write a book about it? You are that accountant. And you're working for a big four accounting firm or something like that. And, and, but you, but you really, you're a female, but you really want to be a stripper. Uh, and so you have the, you know, you got strawberry lane, Facebook account and Instagram account. And so you go and play that role at night. Sure. Why not? You can build up this whole, there is a, um, there is a writer. When I came out, I came, my book was published in 99. Um, 97, 98, um, there was this buzz in New York about this writer by the name of Zane, Z-A-N-E. And Zane was a, is a great writer, but she wrote very, very, very raunchy material. Uh, I mean, it was like Fifty Shades of Grey, um, but it was... It was just like that. I mean, it's not it wasn't even any worse than that. It was, you know, very, very XXX rated stuff. But Zane was like a housewife. And the reason she used the name Zane is because her, her dad was a preacher and uh, she didn't want nobody to know who she was. So she used this pseudonym. And for years, people never knew what she looked like. And she was making millions to the point where not only did Simon and Schuster give her a publishing deal, Simon Schuster gave her a floor to start her own publishing company under, under Simon Schuster. And then she made millions under the pseudonym of Zane. And she was a regular, oh, once again, the, the person you meet, the way she dresses, the way she acts, you would never think that she was that person. No way. He did it for years, but she did it to the point where she got so big that people demanded to see, okay, we want to see who you are now, you know? And so she had to do some public appearances and things like that. So yeah, you can do it. I mean, at the end of the day, your words will carry you. Okay. And you write up under a pseudonym or your own name or whatever. It don't really matter. Your words will carry you. If story is good enough, people don't really care. People don't really care. You know, they kind of like the illusion. They like trying to figure out who you are. It's the game. It's a cat and mouse game. I remember, what was it, two weeks ago on Saturday Night Live, the singer, her, was mm -hmm. on. And it was the first time I saw her, her eyes. I was shocked. I was like, she's not wearing dark shades. Yeah, she's always wearing glasses. Exactly. And she had, like, clear shades. I'm like, oh, my God. I can see her eyes. I love the illusion. You know, we, we love the dark glasses. We love having that mystery concept, a component to it. So it depends on how you market it. I don't care what it was. If you want to be the rapper that's popping bottles with the fast chicks, but you also want to have the nine to five that nobody don't know nothing about that, you can do it. You can do it. You can create this whole fake persona. You know, as long as the story is right, good, nobody cares. But you don't even need a fake persona. You can just build it out of your own life through time. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like I know you know you know what you want your life to look like. Because mm -hmm. like I know I want my life to look like some type of uh, Knights in Camelot. Uh huh. 
Right. Like some huge legacy, but uh, well, not even legacy. I just want to be something that would be book worthy or like comic book worthy because right. like more appealing. You can definitely do that. I mean, all the games, all the all the rules have changed on the internet nowadays. Everything has changed. So um, what you could never have pulled off, you know, ten years ago, you can do now. Mm-hmm. It's acceptable, and nobody's going to look down on you for doing it. You know, we are literally and figuratively all wearing masks. <laughs> so just like we're doing in a literal sense, people are figuratively doing the same thing. The only difference is at one time it wasn't socially acceptable to be, have a separate persona. Now, people are cool with that. People are cool with that. They're okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean... I guess people really didn't know about it. It was really prominent in writing. I know that for a fact. But it what was prominent? Uh, pseudonyms. Oh, yeah. 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 But yeah. I guess my first memory of it was Dr. Seuss. I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of people within that generation do. Yeah. Yeah. I grow up and then I realize pseudonyms are not only for, you know, famous writers that like speaking their mind, but strippers. Anything you mean, you can create that life you want to, uh, you know, that's I guess it works both ways. Yeah. You can, you people are oh, totally fine with that, you know. But I think that for anybody looking to get into writing and to get into, or even music or any type of, of artistic endeavor, I think so many times people focus so much on the marketing and not enough on the craft. The craft is the brick and mortar. <laughs> you know, um, marketing is getting people to come buy from the store. But if you can get people to come buy, but the store sucks, you lost, you waste your time. Yeah. So, uh, so I think that you really want to focus on the craft um, with writing. I mean, you want to just, writers write. You just want to just write, 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 write. Even when when I stopped writing professionally back in 2003, I continued to write um, from a religious, spiritual, uh, philosophical perspective. Not writing novels, just writing thoughts, ideas that came to me. Um, and I kept everything in one word doc. I didn't have, everything's in one word doc. And that was, I started that in 2000, actually 2005. And from 2005 to 2020, that one word doc has 25,000 pages in one word doc. It hasn't crashed yet, so I'm thankful for that. And that one word doc, I think, has like 5 million words in it. And the reason I did that is because if I ever want to write a blog, I don't really like the blog, but if I want to write a blog, if I want to write a book, if I want to write something on a specific topic, I got my own word search data documents. I can go in and type in um, love or whatever word and it's putting up everything I wrote on that subject in a second. So I did everything in one file for that reason. But what it did for me, it allowed me to continue to keep my ax sharp. While I wasn't writing novels, I was continuously sharpening my ax so that I did start writing again it wasn't 
Um, I didn't have I didn't have a long period to ramp up because I had already been, already been writing. It was just redirecting that writing energy. I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. What was your proudest moment that you've had as a writer? In the first book. Um, the proudest moment was actually opening that FedEx package and seeing that baby. It's like, you know, it's like seeing, the, it's like the birth of a child, man, because it is your creative being, not your physical being as in a child, but all your work is now in your hand and you're looking at it and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be on bookshelves and bookstores and yada, yada, yada soon. So that was the proudest. Um, the second proudest would be, um, <laughs> and let me finish the story. It, it's not getting the advance. Getting the advance was great. But <laughs> it was really good. But I was in my yard waiting for the, for the FedEx man. It was like 10, it's been at 10 o'clock. And it was like 10.05. And I'm out there like pacing, waiting. So he comes by, he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. You ain't been waiting long, have you? I'm like, dude, I've been waiting for 45 years for this check, man. <laughs> waiting my entire life for this check. You 45 years late, bro. And uh, so that was my second favorite moment as a writer. But the proudest moment was actually seeing the book. And then also, in conjunction with that, um, this is a kind of long story, but my mom, my mom passed away at, at 97 years old. Um, I would tell my mom things. I was like, you know, mom, I'm in Chicago for a book Sunday. I got like 50 people waiting for me. Mom, I'm in New York. I'm doing X, Y, Z. Mom, I'm in LA. Um, I did this. I had met Oprah, um, met some other celebrities, yada, yada, yada. She was like, oh, yeah. I'm in Essence Magazine. I'm in Ebony. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did the Essence Festival, whatever, whatever. None of that mattered until my mom walked into a Walmart in little old Gainesville, Florida. And when she saw my book, she was done. <laughs> she was, this your book. Your book is in Walmart. She's going to the store telling people, this is my son's book. Come here, come here. Let me show you. This is my son. I'm like, that did it for you? <laughs> Oprah, nothing. Walmart, Gainesville, that did it for you. So that was, I think that's probably my proudest moment because my mom was able to be happy. <laughs> How was the creation of the first book like? Any hardships? The creation of the first book? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, uh, I knew that I wanted to, when I was in college, I wanted to write a book. And what happened was when I was playing football in college, um, I had a friend uh, who I grew up with, um, who read, my roommate, who read a love letter that I wrote to a young lady. Um, He plagiarized the the love letter and wrote it, it was sent it to another girl. And I was like, David, don't do that, man, because what if these chicks know each other? You know, now you're gonna mess me up. I was like, dude, listen, I'll write you a letter. All right, great. So I wrote him a letter. I guess it worked because he came back and told some guys on the football team. And they was like, yo, you write me a letter? I'm like, yeah, I do for five bucks. (laughs) 
So I had like this little hustle. I'm like writing letters for all these football guys on the team and everything. And I'm like telling them, listen, I write the letter, but can you rewrite it in your own handwriting? Don't just give her what I give you. At least, at least write the letter yourself. But that was the first time I knew that I could do something that everybody couldn't do. It had something special about it. So fast forward, I'm in my 30s. I'm 33, 34 at the time. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a novel. And all I knew was that I was going to name the novel Until. That's all I knew. I didn't know nothing about the book. I was going to write the name of the novel Until. So um, um, I wrote the novel real fast. Uh, I, I, I had a financial planning firm at the time. I told my people, listen, we're going to close the doors. We're gonna, I'm going to release this novel. Because I'm thinking, I'm going to go on Oprah. I'm going to sell my movie rights. I'm going to be a millionaire. Uh, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> but I did close my company. Uh, I didn't get any, any acceptance from agents, none, zero. I sent the book out to like 75 agents. I got like 76 rejection letters. I swear there was somebody I didn't even send the book to who sent me a rejection. Don't send that to me. Like, dude, (laughs) (laughs) who are you? I don't even know you, bro. (laughs) Rejecting my book. And, uh, but what I, what I did, I took the book back and I rewrote, 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 rewrote. And then I sent it out again. And I got rejection letters again, but they were not as harsh. So I was like, okay, I rewrite it, rewrite, rewrite. Send it out. Then it was getting rejection letters were saying, we like your book. It's just not what we are looking for. But it's a good book, but we don't want to publish it. So it's like, I'm real close. So then what I did was I, um, I self-published 500 copies. But what I did, this was in the mid-90s. In those days, Amazon would put the email address if you, had a, if you did a book review. So <laughs> I went through Amazon for everybody who's, who was in my genre. And I took the email addresses from everybody, all the women mostly, in New York and New Jersey. Because I knew that women in New York and New Jersey would possibly know somebody who knew somebody and published. So I'm trying to get the hookup. I'm like, okay, I need to go to where the energy is. So I got those email addresses. I started emailing them in group emails like, listen, this is my book. This is an excerpt. This is the website, blah, 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 blah. And if you like the book, you know, shoot me an email. I'll send you a free copy. So I sent out probably 200 free copies. Send them out. Lo and behold, about two months later, I get this phone call from a publicist. And she's like, Every, I, she said, because she got my number from an age, uh, 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 a, um, a writer friend of mine. She's like, everybody in New York is talking about your book. I'm like, really? Well, she might have met two people <laughs> out of those 200, but two people became everybody. And she's like, I want you to come up and do a book signing. So keep in mind, I'm from Gainesville, Florida. I had never done a book signing in Gainesville. Not one in Atlanta, nowhere, none. Matter of fact, I had never been to a book signing. I'm getting ready to do my first book signing in Harlem. (laughs) And uh, I fly up there, man, and uh, I'm with about four or five other authors. We do the book signing. And then uh, I just went around. I got my book bag, put my my backpack, filled it up with books, and went to all the agents' offices, man, and knocked on doors. You look at my book. You look at my book. My book. And. I got one agent who was actually, she represents the estate 
of Zora Neale Hurston. And she told me, she said, listen, your book is very different. She said, I'll get you a book deal in 90 days or I won't get you one at all. I'm just gonna tell you. And on day 88, I got a call from her and said, HarperCollins wanna buy the rights to your book. And so that's how I got my first book. There was a two book deal and, I, and, and we wrote four, ended up writing four books and three of them became national bestsellers. Yeah, yeah, that was my journey, man. <laughs> So how do you, once you started seeing like how successful the book actually was, what was your reaction? I, I enjoyed it. Um, what I enjoyed more than anything, more so than the success was the interaction with the public. That was the biggest enjoyment. There's nothing more, because you have to keep in mind that if, if I'm an actor on Broadway, um, I act, I get feedback from the, the little crowd that come. I go out one, the next night, we'll do the show. We get more feedback. We can tell by the booze, we can tell by the laughter. We get feedback constantly as we shape the show. We shape how this show is gonna be done from yeah. um, pre-production until the point where it's, we, we really you know, find our stride. Um, if I'm a comedian, I can go out and I can test certain bits. I can see how it's working. As an author, you really don't get that opportunity. It's me and my editor, and boom, everybody's reading it. So if the book is not working, it's too late. It's already out there. We don't really know. You don't really, nor can I see you read it. I can't see, I don't see where you laugh. I don't see what makes you cry. I don't see what turns you off. So. I'm kind of in a vacuum. I'm hoping it works, but I don't really know because I don't get that instant feedback from the reader. So the closest I can get to that is when I do a, uh, a book reading and we do a discussion and people can tell you, I like that scene. I love this guy, blah, 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 blah. So having said all of that, the most fulfilling thing to me, more so than the success of the book, is when you have a reader who will tell you how your character looks or what your character would do. No, Joe wouldn't do that. Well, Joe wouldn't say that. You're like, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. And the reason I love that is because they have made that character their own, mm -hmm. my character. And so I would never tell a character, a reader, that's not true. That's not how she would react. No, that's your story. And so my job now is to take myself out of my eyes and I want to see it through your eyes. I want to see, I want to experience the book. Because I've already experienced it my way. Mm -hmm. I want to see it your way now. I want to see it through your perspective. And so that to me has always been very, very enjoyable. I mean, it's just another part of art. Most definitely. Most definitely. That's, that's the artist thing. You know, true artists are not rewarded with money. You know, you want to get paid. You want, and the reason you want to get paid well, two reasons. First of all, it's security. But second, second reason is, is, is affirming that you're doing the right thing. Um, but it's not your validation that you're doing the right thing. It doesn't prove that you're better than anybody and things like that. No, to me, that comes from the enjoyment of the person who's looking at the artwork, watching them smile. That's 
that's why you do what you do. I want to see your eyes light up. Mm -hmm. Because you know? uh, as a writer, we all go from that same energy. And that energy is as simple as when you are seven years old and, and somebody look at you and they say, once upon a time, and your eyes light up and your heart slows down. You want to hear what's, what comes next. As a writer, that same thing turns me on. I want to say, basically, in my own way, once upon a time, and the person is all leers like, what happened? That's the payoff for the writer. I see what you mean. So then how many books did you make as a full-time writer? Four. I, I published four novels. Mm -hmm. um, they're all one-word titles until my first one. Second one is entitled Always. Uh, until is about putting your life, your hopes, your dreams off. Until. You know, it's about, you know, your parents telling you, um, you can do this when you get into high school. And you say, well, okay, I'm in high school. Well, wait until you get to college to do this. And I'm in college. Well, wait until you graduate. Then that's when you do it. I've graduated. Well, until you get married, that's when you do it. And, and you keep putting your life off until the next thing. That's what until is about, about this, these two people who meet each other, who've been putting their life off until the next thing. Um, and uh, the next book is about, is entitled Always. And always comes from the subject, the, the scripture in the Bible that says, what is, it, what is it for a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul? It's about a person who's on the precipice of winning the presidency of the United States. But on election night, he's wondering, did I give up too much to get to this point in life? And then in Forever, my third book, um, it's about the first year of a marriage and the trials that people deal with in the first year of marriage. And then the fourth book is entitled Emotions. And in Emotions, it's, a, uh, <laughs> it's about a cougar, which in those days, we didn't even call them cougars. <laughs> I just thought about that. This is, I wrote it back, it came out in 2003. There was no such thing as a cougar. But it's about a cougar who, who gets involved with an entrapment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and how that works out for our marriage. So that's what uh, e that's what emotions is about. And then that takes me to my. Uh, I've actually wrote, published four books. I got one, two books that are finished. One coming out this year. No, I'm sorry. One coming out at the beginning of next year, and then the other one coming out in 22. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I got plenty of material, man. I'll be dropping a book, if not one book or two, maybe two books every every year. So what brought you back to full time writing? COVID. Okay. It kept you inside. And well, more so than that, just seeing how crazy things got in the first six months. Mm -hmm. Um. I didn't even think about this before, which is why I paused. I thank George Floyd also. Um, you know, George Floyd happened on Memorial Day. And it's like, what in the hell is happening in this world? You know, I mean, everything was falling apart. And I decided I wanted to document what was going on. And I wanted to do it in a narrative form. 
So I wanted to talk about the financial crisis and the political crisis, the presidential year and the COVID and the racial relationships. And, and then on top of that, throw on top of that, a marriage. And on top of that, two people who got two different dreams and they both want to do their own thing in the midst of COVID. So you got this, this perfect storm of emotions, everything going wrong. And as a writer, you just stir it up. You just stir it up and then see what happened in the end. So the book opens up, I'm talking about divorcing Atlanta. Uh, divorcing Atlanta opens up, it's about this pastor who we find that's uh, homeless. Um, he lost his church, he's lost everything. And his wife has divorced him. And he's contemplating doing the unthinkable. Um, and literally in the first chapter of the book, he uh, pulls out a Glock, he puts it up on his chin, and he pulls the trigger. And that's in chapter one. What do you do for an encore? <laughs> and that's in chapter one. Yeah, yeah. So do the books like continue within that same theme? Because I remember you said in the first book, or until it started with a couple just kept on waiting to move on with their life until like something had passed. And then always they were married. The, mm -hmm. the third book, I would, you said you were talking about a cougar getting into an entrapment. So I'm guessing involving that same marriage and now divorcing it. Sound kind of trite, but you have to quiet yourself. You have to quiet the noise. You have to quiet the emotions. The outside and the inside noise, the advice from friends and family and, and your emotions, that's the inside noise where I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do the other thing. That shouldn't be your guiding light. But when you quiet yourself to that point where you can hear your heart, your true desires come out, your true soul come out, your true core comes through. And sometimes it takes getting away from people Sometimes it takes uh, meditating. I'm gonna tell you, um, I don't know if your listeners have ever tried it or not, or maybe you've never tried it, but fasting is a really good way to quiet everything. Because when you start feeding the flesh and denying the flesh what it wants, sometimes you can block it out and then you can hear from your spirit, you know? That's why the stereotypical wise men, you see them on top of a mountain and they're sitting there and they're meditating. Well, that's analogous just to, to self-deprecation. Self you just, I'm not, I don't want nothing. I don't want nothing. I want to be deprived of everything, okay? Because I want to, I'm trying to find out what my soul is saying. So I say that's what you want to do. Find out what you want first and then you then talk to people and see if it lines up with your wants and your needs and your desires on top of it. And uh, I think that's how you find your, your happiness. All right. So where can people find you out? Where can the listeners find you? First and foremost, go to my website, Pastor Timothy, T-I-M-M-O-T-H-Y, Timothy with two M's, PastorTimothy.com. And when they go to my, news, my website, please, please, please sign up for the newsletter. They'll get all of the new releases. Uh, we do seminars. We're going to do a webinar in about 
on the 28th of this month, but you got to go to the website to do go to uh, to sign up for that. Um, it's the easiest way to stay in contact. And if they email me from the website, I'll always email them back. Okay. Okay. Hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And you have exceeded my expectations in every way. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> okay. Yep, you too. Keep laughing, man. This wraps up another episode of OM. Go engage with Pastor McKinnon's website to get the latest updates on divorcing Atlanta. Before you guys go, I know you guys were wondering about what happened with the last episode. I had to take care of some projects for school and work on the future of the podcast, actually. So with that said, I'm actually going to wrap up the first season of the podcast in the next episode and start back up again in the new year. So I don't want to leave you guys hanging and I also want to give you guys a banger for the last episode. I want to do something fun to close out the season. So for three days following the podcast, I'm going to leave a poll on my Instagram page to do either an Instagram live Q&A or a roundtable year in review with two guests. In order to vote, you have to follow me on my Instagram, which is in the show notes below. As always, if you enjoyed this episode or learned anything from it, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review and share with a friend so I can continue to deliver valuable content for you guys and we can grow this community. Thanks again, guys, and I'll see you in two weeks.